from KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Tis the season for gift guides, and don't you know we've got some ideas for you. It's our annual cookbook show, which means putting in a call to Celia Sack of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. To kick us off today, she has recommendations for all the food-focused folks on your list. Hi, Celia. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, good. I'm, I'm really excited. Excellent. Me too. But nervous as usual and more than usual this year. Because I know I always tell you it feels like an oral exam. Uh, everyone always asks me why I don't ask you for questions in advance. And I'm like, I don't know if that's allowed. I don't know. It's just not right. But, but there are allowed. so many great books out this year. I just was like, oh, my God, what am I going to what am I going to choose? What am I not going to choose? It's really hard. So were there any kind of trends this year with cookbooks that were discernible? Yes. I am happy to announce a new trend (laughs) that I'm really fascinated by. So, you know, for the past several years, it's there have been a lot of books by chefs who are sort of going back to their roots. Maybe they came here as babies from another country and they're looking back at the foods of those countries. Well, now it's time for the that first generation of people who were born and raised in the United States to start writing about their food foods which are oftentimes a mix of what they've what they've eaten from what their parents brought over but also american food that has been blended in there was eric kim with korean american there was iliana moissane who wrote diasporican about puerto rican uh, american food from her mother who she you know has a complicated relationship with so sort of accepted into her cooking but also wanted to cook her own food there's Walks of Life, which is this fabulous blog that became a cookbook of a whole family of two young women and their parents, the Leung family. And they, um, the parents are from China and the kids are from here, but mix in a lot of Chinese-American uh, styles. And then First Generation by Frankie Gaw, which is his mother and father were Taiwanese, are Taiwanese, and he's bringing that food in. And both Frankie and Eric are gay, which is is also kind of interesting because their relationships with their immigrant parents is, you know, has has really had to develop and a lot of acceptance on both sides. Uh, but he was talking about how his mother really wanted to assimilate, but doesn't really understand, didn't really understand like the assignment. And so she would make like a huge plate of spaghetti and then put a soy braised salmon right on top of it. And she just would sort of mix things literally together. And so he really takes off on that and and just makes such such beautiful food and and there are step-by-step instructions on making your own dumplings and things like that. Yeah, we loved all of these books uh, here at Good Food. And there's even another sort of the the mix of of American diaspora as well. There are a couple of African-American books that came out this year. One is called California Soul and the other one is called Homage Homage by Chris Scott, which is all about... So Tanya Holland wrote California Soul and hers is about the Southern uh, migration up into California of Black Americans. And his is about Black Americans moving to Pennsylvania and Amish country. And that's also really, really fascinating. Yeah, super fascinating. Love both those books. What books do you give to someone you live with 
to drop a hint that you'd like them to share some of the cooking responsibilities, <laughs> like maybe let's think beginner's guide to okay. turning on the stove and following yeah. the recipes. <laughs> well, so one of my favorite beginner's guides is called Dinner in One by Melissa Clark. It's really great because it's all about using one pot. And I oftentimes lead people over to the books that are like sheet pan cooking. There are, there are always great ones on those or cooking in one dish, which makes things a lot less scary. So I think Dinner in One is really a, a perfect example of what this year is probably the easiest book to dip into. Was there um, a book that surprised you um, in its popularity this year? Oh my God, yes. That Walks of Life um, was the by the Leung family that I was telling you about. Um, that, I think last year I talked to you about my frustration with publishers not really grasping the strength of the Asian community's desire for cookbooks about Asian food. And so last year a bunch of books went out of print right at Christmas that were, you know, Korean vegan, uh, mooncakes and milk bread, and uh, to Asia with love. Well, this year, I think they're on it. And Walks of Life, we suddenly got this influx of orders. I think we've sold about 150 in the last couple of weeks since the book has come out. And then the other one that's been so huge for us is What's for Dessert by Claire Saffetz. We have signed copies of that and we got uh, 550 orders, pre-orders for it that we've spent the last week, me and one other employee packing and shipping. And it's <laughs> it's been a very intense week, but boy, that really uh, also surprised us. So wonderful. And now we are on to our famed speed round. So okay. give me a title for a gift for the baker. Okay, for the baker, besides the Claire Saffitz book that I just mentioned, What's for Dessert? I'm going to say The Cookie Bible by Rose Levy Berenbaum or Gateau, which is all about French cakes by Alexandra Carapanzano. And last, last choice, Delectable by Claudia Fleming, who wrote The Last Course. She was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern. And she's got things like a kumquat tatin in it, a grapefruit rugula, really interesting stuff. A children's book. So Abuelita and I make a flan and Cocinando on Cook Street are both really, really nice ones that are Mexican-American. But my personal favorite is one called What's Cooking in Flowerville. I think I told you about What's Cooking at 10 Garden Street a couple of years ago. And this is by the same author, Felicitia Sala. And it's all about cooking from rooftop gardens and, and what you harvest there. But it's for kids and it's absolutely charming. Okay, for the bartender behind the bar. There are quite a few nice cocktail books this year. Modern Classic Cocktails by Robert Simonson is probably my favorite. It's all about modern cocktails that have suddenly become classics. There's one called the Chartreuse Twist that's that's just excellent. And one other I'm going to say is Black Mixolence is really fun by Tamika Hall. It's all about black bartenders and their drinks and profiles of them around the country and also a history of black bartenders and cocktails. Fabulous. Barbecue and meat enthusiast. Whole duck. 
The Whole Duck by Jennifer Reichart. She uh, is one of the people who runs Liberty Ducks, which is a very well-renowned duck uh, producer in California, up in Sonoma. And, you know, there aren't really any books on, on cooking duck out there. And so this is an exciting new area. And she even has desserts, like a chocolate icing that's made with duck fat, which is, you know, just fantastic and creamy and delicious. So, you know, you finally, for anyone like me, who's been sort of afraid of cooking duck and just blackening the windows and steaming up the house with horrible smoke, she actually teaches you how to do it right. Vegan. Okay. Mission Vegan by Danny Bowen. Of course, he is um, late of Mission Chinese Restaurant, uh, both in San Francisco and New York. He's an old customer of mine, and I adore him. And Mission Vegan is his new book and really wonderful. And then there's one that came out last week that's really cool called Vegan Africa. And this is actually, you know, about vegan cooking in Africa and bringing it back over here. So that's exciting. The Skilled Home Cook Looking for a Challenge. Motherland, which is a Jamaican cookbook, that's a really interesting one. Um, she's got like peanut punch, jerk pork, ackee and saltfish, things that, you know, you probably haven't really cooked much of before. And also Budmo by Anna Volshnaya. She is uh, Ukrainian and the cookbook is Ukrainian and happened to come out this October, just, you know, right at a time when we're thinking so much about Ukraine. And so it's really cool to sort of go into those recipes and find out more about that cuisine. It is always such a pleasure to um, to listen to you wax on about our love cookbooks. Thank you so much, <laughs> Celia. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as always, Evan. That's Celia Sack, owner of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Head over to the Good Food website to find a list of all the titles that we talked about. It's at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up with so many variations, what makes borscht borscht? The author of Budmo, one of Celia's cookbook picks, joins me next with the answer. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Ukraine has been on our minds for some time now. As in many countries torn by war, the cuisine of the region has a history of revolt and resilience. Anna Voloshina is a Ukrainian-born food writer and cooking instructor who lives in the Bay Area. In her new cookbook, she gets closer to home by sharing family recipes and modern reimaginings of traditional ones. Hi, Anna. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me today. Oh, we're so happy to have you. Budmo is an absolutely gorgeous book. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so proud of it. You should be. Have you found that more people are taking an interest in the cuisine of your homeland since the Russian invasion? 
Yes, absolutely. I feel like a lot of people now, first of all, they know about our country and they know where it's located and the cities and uh, everyone is just following the news and admiring the spirit and the whole fight that Ukrainians are putting towards Russia. And of course, they are now more interested in Ukrainian culture and food. And I got so many requests for different Ukrainian recipes. And it makes me very happy that people are finally realizing that Ukrainian food is very interesting and it's not the same as Russian food. Yeah, it's so interesting when you're far away from something and you want to give support, aside from giving money and reading and keeping up with with news, there's something about digging into a cuisine that makes you feel closer. Yeah, I think it's another level of connection. It's deeper. It's more meaningful. So when I was a kid... Uh, I almost never had meatloaf when I was growing up because my mom always made stuffed cabbage instead, um, what you call golubzi. And you make yours with brined cabbage leaves from a jar. Is that traditional? No, it's not. So... um one Ukrainian lady who uh, who I met here in the United States, uh, we were just chatting and talking about how horrible the whole process of like boiling and peeling cabbage leaf is. And she's like, yeah, but you can buy them pickled. And I'm like, wow, this is the best idea ever. Because first of all, you're just skipping this step of prepping the cabbage altogether. And secondly, you're adding this layer of flavors. And I know that in my part of the country, in the southern Ukraine, we never had that. But in western Ukraine, they actually pickle the cabbage leaves for the dish. So I've never tasted it. And I thought I'm so original, but it turned out we actually have it in Ukraine, but I just never tasted, never came across it. It's such a genius idea. I love stuffed cabbage so much. And the thing that keeps me from making it more often is that whole part of prepping the cabbage. Same, but just make sure you need uh, to soak the leaves before cooking, like at least half an hour to one hour because the uh, store-bought cabbage leaves, they're very briny and salty. So we need to get rid of that extra saltiness by soaking the leaves uh, for one hour in cold water. And this works like a dream. And you also um, didn't use a tomato-based sauce in in your book. Uh, tell us about what you do instead. So in this particular recipe, since the cabbage leaves are so tangy and they already have enough acidity, I wanted to uh, come up with something creamy. And as you notice that the Stuffing is also not meat, but barley and fried mushrooms. So I wanted this comforting dish. I was thinking about like this barley risotto uh, ish inspiration. So I'm like, okay, we can come up with something fun and new. And uh, this is one of the recipes that I kind of modernized for the book because why not? It's fun to come up with new ideas. Absolutely. And your culture is so much about stuffing things into things. (laughs) (laughs) I know that um, borscht is kind of the ubiquitous question (laughs) that you would normally be asked. But I think that your take on golden beets in the recipe is really 
interesting. And I would love you to talk about um, why you decided to make that change and if the color change is reflected in other elements of the recipe. Oh, my God. This is such a funny story about this borscht. So um, in the southern part of Ukraine, green borscht is also red. Uh, and uh, my mom just made it like red, but added sorrel. And that what made it kind of green borscht. And I was eating this whole life. And then my husband and I uh, just started dating and I wanted to impress him. So I met made this green borscht, which was in fact red. And he's like, no, 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 this is not green borscht. I'm like, no, this is green. He said, this is red borscht. I'm like, no, but I added this chopped egg and sorrel, so that's why it's green. And he's like, no, no. And then my mom and I came to my mother-in-law and she made this beautiful green borscht, which was actually green for us. And uh, it was such a revelation because uh, she did not use uh, red beads, the thing that actually colors the borscht. And uh, I'm not sure if she even used golden beads, but I feel like beads are such an important part of borscht that I decided to add golden beads. And I searched for different recipes uh, in like different old Ukrainian books. And I know that they used white beads for that, but I couldn't find them here. So I decided to use golden beads. And uh, in Ukraine, for most, most of the time, they don't use any beads in green borscht at all. Because I, when I was growing up, a green borscht, my mother called it shav. And the sorrel, which has that very tangy flavor, mm-hmm. is so forward in, 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 in the soup. Is yours the same as it really gets its kind of a, a different kind of tang because of the, the sorrel? Yeah. So uh, a lot of people ask me what makes borscht borscht because there are so many variations. And I say this tanginess, this lovely complexity, like almost sourness, that what makes borscht the traditional Ukrainian dish. If you will only use sorrel, it will be pretty tangy. So I tried to balance it out with um, fresh spinach and it added this lushness, but at the same time, the tanginess is there. So it's just a very nice balance of everything. It's apple season now. um, And you talk about a recipe for um, an apple infused vodka. How long does it take to make? And is it difficult? Oh, no, no, not difficult at all. It takes like five minutes, maybe. Like, as, uh, you just need to peel your a- uh, apples and pick the smallest apples you can find uh, and the most flavorful ones. Just stuff them, them in a jar and pour vodka on top. And uh, I believe I added a little bit of honey. Or I think honey makes everything slightly better. So it, it will not make your vodka sweet, but it will just add this roundness. And uh, you just put it in a dark corner, shake it once in a while, like once in two days, and you will have your vodka in uh, one week or you can keep it longer and it will just be richer and the flavor will be stronger and brighter and uh, you can keep it for months in that jar and the apples you can actually use them for some granita or uh, just slice them and uh, serve as an appetizer to vodka but they are very boozy (laughs) oh i love 
love that idea. Once you have it, do you just tend to just sip it straight or do you have a specialty cocktail you like to make? No, I actually, I like to put it in a bottle and then uh, put it in the freezer forever and ever. And when we have guests, we just shoot the vodka before like starting the wine or something. Like it's a very Ukrainian thing to like have a sip of vodka uh, at the dinner table, especially if you have something hearty and comforting. And uh, we always say some nice toast toast for Ukraine and say budmo and cheers to, um, to Ukraine. Well, Anna, it's been such a lovely pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for supporting my book and supporting Ukraine. That's Bay Area Anna Voloshina. We've been discussing her new cookbook, Budmo, Recipes from a Ukrainian Kitchen. We have a recipe for her cabbage rolls with barley and mushrooms on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. I have a World War II propaganda poster in my dining room with the caption, food is a weapon. It's a bilious green that makes me kind of queasy. At a time when food is often seen as the kinder, gentler way to gloss over difficult gatherings, it's good to remember that food and the conversations around it have the power to change narratives. Ghetto Gastro is a Bronx-born culinary collective that wants to look at the food world from a point of view that celebrates Black food and Black culture, and that inspires a larger conversation about race, history, food inequality, but joy, too. There's so much joy mixed in. John Gray and Pierre Soreau are two of the three collaborators who created the book Black Power Kitchen. Welcome to Good Food, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So happy to be here. Got to shout out Osai Endolin, our co-writer, who helped us put the put the words to paper and make it pop. We're such fans. So let's just start with the title, Ghetto Gastro. Ghetto is a word that for a lot of people has a lot of negative connotations. Obviously, you chose it extremely intentionally. So kind of break down what it means for the both of you. Well, when we started with the name Ghetto Gastro, we understood it was polarizing. But for us, it was really to celebrate where we're from and the significant cultural contributions that come from communities that have been blighted, underestimated, and what have you. And just really wanting to turn on its head how people think about the word ghetto and not to kind of cater to the white gaze or the external communities, but really to have an internal conversation with people from environments that have been underestimated. So we know that we are valuable and our creations have value as well. And your expressions aren't just culinary, they're multimedia and multidisciplinary. How did you find one another and decide to create together? Well, we were all on, you know, our, our separate journeys in life. And John and Lester had been, um, John and Lester had grown up in the same neighborhood in, in the Bronx in Co-op City. 
in Section 5, to be specific. And, um, you know, the two of them had just had conversations about creating a business around food that was more inclusive for people like us. You know, we were tired of going into different spaces and hearing the, our music playing on the on the speakers and, you know, our pieces of our culture used for the vibration. But like when we look around, you see people who are in managerial positions and positions of power. There were no people of color or any black people in those positions. So, you know, Ghetto Gasho was an idea that was formed. I think it was in a nap that John came up with the name. And, uh, you know, John, Les, and myself have just been on this mission ever since to, you know, create a space where there's uh, more of more of us. And the book really reflects this multimedia kind of exuberance in this journey that you are. You feature conversations with artists, writers, and creators, as well as chefs. How does food come into play? Well, for us, food is a great medium to disperse information and to tell stories. We look at food as the first social network. When you think about ideas being shared, bread being broken, and food is also a tool, it's a soft power tool. We just wanted to make it a little harder and more in your face, you know? So for us, it's about nourishment for the mind, body, and the soul. Tell us about W-O-L-F, Wolf, and what a ghetto gastro dish is, how it's built. Well, when we talk about uh, the W-O-L-F, Wolf moniker, you know, that stands for We Only Layer Flavor. And when we talk about layering flavor, we layer flavors in different ways on our side. So it's either it's with the actual flavors that you're consuming and with the stories that are that go into the food. So talking about how important storytelling is in the creation of a ghetto gastro dish, our quintessential uh, signature dish is the triple C's, which is cornbread, crab and caviar. Um, and in that dish, we are having a conversation around the collaboration between indigenous Americans and enslaved Africans who were um, who shared that corn crop and the knowledge around that, which created the bread, the cornbread, which is like America's bread. And then we also go into talking about how the crab salad is representing Black people in our communities have always been known, uh, had this conversation around being crabs in a barrel, but we on our side understand that crabs don't belong in a barrel. They don't thrive in barrels. They thrive in the sea and in the open. So, and on top, we're putting this caviar, which is black at the top and also black at the foundation with the cornbread. But the conversation around the caviar is that it's this European luxury, uh, it's European luxurious ingredient, but it actually originates in, you know, the Middle East, in the Caspian Sea. So when we think about just the layering of flavors from storytelling, the food, um, these are all different elements that go into creating uh, dishes at GG. And the book is so good at expressing these layers. Um, I can only imagine what um, being in an actual live event of yours must be. Um, I want listeners to kind of get a flavor of how much is jammed into your work. And I think the cornbread is a great example. It's one of the first recipes in the book. And it's followed by this wonderful painting by Henry Taylor and then a poem by Aja Monet. Um, could you describe the painting? And if one yeah. of you has easy access to the poem, maybe read just a tiny bit of it. 
Yeah, the painting that you're speaking of, the Henry Taylor, um, that that is accompanied by the Triple C's. I was actually with Henry at his home in Los Angeles, and I saw the painting in his kitchen. And I was like, yo, this painting is crazy. And I noticed the cornbread, the syrup. I'm like, we need this. We need this for the book. And he's like, look, this painting is it's my mother. My mother's name, his his mother passed away. Her name is Cora. So in the when you see the painting, it says cornbread on two lines, but you see he highlighted Cora within the two words of corn and bread. So it's it's really an ode to his mother. And I was like, that makes it even more special. And then we had our brother Chase Hall, who's a disciple, and Henry Taylor's one of his mentors. We commissioned him to do the painting of the gentleman holding a crab because he did a series that was focused on like black fishermen in New England. And I remember seeing someone with the lobster. And I know Pierre reached out to to Aja to lace us with some words. I'll, I'll pull up, I'll pull up the poem and just and just read a few bars from the poem. Each of us are here because someone fed us, watering mouths outstretched, smacking on sugared dreams and drizzled joys, sacred as yams and okra seeds, rasta fruits and gulla vegetables, love, deep hunger, a sermon in a skillet, black as the cosmos, sizzling, cooked by beautiful bare hands, fresh squeezed, liberation is homemade from scratch, Sweet as honey in the rock. Revolutions are stewed and sautéed on stovetops. Every movement starts in sweaty kitchens. While passing plates and peppering palace, bless the dressing and the well-dressed. It starts in you, with you, and for you. A community-led recipe. The truth is best served at room temperature. Food is a vibe, a tone, a tune, a mood, the marching orders, an appetite for belonging, a dance with pots and pans, the thick smell of care lingering in a room. Never mind the measuring, a pinch of heart, a sprinkle of courage. Let us gather one by one, eyes glistening, seasoning a perfect silence. Meals that mean, make you want to shout the way closed mouths don't get fed. Those are words from the great Aja Monet. So fantastic. Um, So let's turn to one of the recipes. I'd love to to ask you about the maroon shrooms. Let's talk about it. Talk about the the connection um, and how the connection to the people called maroons and how it's cooked in the ground and why. Well, yeah, you know, we wanted to highlight, you know, the the emancipation of the of the maroon people who were um a, a, you know, a group of people who fled the enslavement in Jamaica and went into the mountains and they created this the technique of of barbecuing known as jerk 
And, you know, in this jerk technique, they were cooking in the mountains and they were cooking under under the ground, buried underneath uh, like banana leaves and leaves, which uh, created this the smoking effect, which is how you get the smoked chicken. But the reason they did that was so that the smoke didn't give off their position and their whereabouts to the colonizers. So um, for us, we're using that dish and we're, you know, we're highlighting some plants in that dish. We're using mushrooms as our... Uh, vegetable of choice. We're using natural fruits to sweeten the dish as opposed to uh, refined sugars. So in that dish, you'll see like Japanese pears and apples that are mixed with roasted kombu and scotch bonnet and allspice that we create a marinade with those things. And then uh, the glaze is made with, uh, I believe it's coconut, nectar, and honey. So we're getting our sweetness from uh, different places, not using any sugar. And um, just layering the flavors once again and telling these stories about um, our ancestors who paved the way for us. Well, thank you so much, John and Pierre. It's been so much fun getting to talk to you and the book is really something so special. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate that. Super happy to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time to build with us. John Gray and Pierre Serrault, along with Lester Walker and Osai Endelin, are the co-authors behind Ghetto Gastro's fabulous new cookbook, Black Power Kitchen. It's jam-packed with history, art, culture, and, of course, recipes. For that cornbread, crab, and caviar recipe we talked about, go to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. In a minute from a simple salted onion and pomegranate salad to a creamy miso caramel, we explore how salt can transform ingredients next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Most chefs and home cooks would agree that the most essential ingredient in the kitchen is salt. And with the popularity of fermentation and preserving seeing no signs of slowing down, salt in its many forms is more top of mind than ever. Talented cookbook author and photographer Naomi Duguid is here to discuss the miracle that is salt. Hello. Hi there, Evan. Lovely to be with you. You know, your books are always such a joy to read. They're so absolutely beautifully photographed. And that, and the fact that you do so much traveling brings so much to the stories that you tell. And um, this one is no different. Could we begin by talking about the inequitable dis- distribution of salt around the world and how historically it promoted exchange and trade? Sure. It's it's really interesting. I mean, it's like any other, you know, any other mineral or substance. There's salt, of course, in the oceans. There's brine. So anybody living next to the sea has a chance to at least collect, you know, seawater and try and boil it down, get extract salt from that. But there's a lot of salt in the continental, in the dry land portion of the globe, but not everywhere. And that salt originally originated in the sea long ago and continents moved and geologists know those stories. Um, I can't tell them. And so that means that now there's, for example, you know, a big salt deposit under New York State and, and Ontario, but, you know, there there's other places where there's no salt at all. And so since we all have to have salt, it's the only food we have to have, 
that means that people who didn't have salt, for example, in in Southeast Asia, an example I've sort of run into quite a lot is people in the hills didn't have salt, but there were salt wells, in other words, salt water coming out of the ground in the valleys. And so that meant that people in the hills had to sort of bring down maybe something they'd hunted or something they found, something they had of value and trade it for salt in the valleys. And of course, the people with the salt could could demand quite a lot for it because the people in the hills had to have the salt. And that leads to all kinds of things like if we all have to have salt and the population is a farming population and they're eating mostly vegetables, they really need salt because we can get salt also from the blood and meat. Um, they can be taxed. The salt can be taxed. The central government can control salt. And that's what happened in France. Um, the British did it in India. And um, so the Indian population, especially along the coast, were used to gathering salt along the sea coast. And, and the British said, well, we want to tax salt. So we're going to forbid you all from gathering salt for yourselves. You have to buy it from our depots, our salt depots, and pay a pay a tithe, pay extra for it. And that's, of course, one of the big causes of the of the sort of successful, I mean, that was one of the things that pushed people to really rebel against the British in the 30s. Gandhi's Salt March is the famous example of it. You know, those of us who are lucky enough to have access to different salts that come from all over the world um, understand that there is such a huge vocabulary of salt. Can you um, describe a bit the subtleties in taste and and aroma of different salts and their provenance? Yeah, I, I can and I'll, I'll start, but I also, I want to start by saying people who don't have access to the whole array should not feel deprived because in most cooking, once the salt goes into the water that you're boiling for pasta, for example, you couldn't tell if you tasted that water which salt you'd used. So the subtleties are very subtle, and they're mostly discernible by the feel. In other words, the crystals feel, they look different, and they feel different in your fingers if you pick up a pinch. And then there's an aroma as well, but that's also if you have the salt in a jar and take the lid off, you can get a hit of, for example, the smell of the sea, or you can get a little sulfur hit from black salt. And then when you sprinkle a salt crystals on at the last minute, for example, if you make a salad or if you have something else and you just put a finishing salt on, then when you bite into the, that food right away before the salt melts, and if you use those finishing flat salts, it takes a little minute to melt. So there's time for you to get an immediate taste. Then you are going to taste it. So mostly, it's very ephemeral. During your research, you you traveled quite a bit. Could you share, kind of paint a picture of a couple different places you, you went to to see salt being made that really um, made an impact on you? Well, there there's a pair of places that were oddly linked because of technique. So early on, I, w I had the book in mind, but <clears throat> I hadn't kind of clamped tightly onto how I was going to do it at all. I just sort of thought salt, and my mind was drifting to salt and labor and salt and technique. And I was in Basque country, and there's a place called the Salinas de Añana, which is not on the coast. You'd think, oh, Basque country, Spain, 
you know the the waters of the Atlantic. Don't know. It's inland, and it's a there's a salt salt well, a salt spring. So water coming out of the ground, even before the Romans got there, they'd figured out that they could boil that water and make salt. And when the it seems to be when the Romans came, most of the hills had been denuded of wood, so they made kind of platforms like terraces. They terraced the hillsides. And then they, the water flowed down the terraces and then evaporated in these ponds down the hillside. But then I was in Peru and up in the Altiplano, I mentioned Maras near Cusco. And there, people have been doing it since before the time of the Incas, locals told me. The same thing, the salt water comes out. We're at 12,000 feet. And here's the salt spring, a taste of the ocean from long ago, coming and it's a huge landscape and steep, steep. And there's all these ponds and pools. There's a picture of it in the book, several pictures. And the, the soil is kind of reddish. And individual people from the village each own have the right to a pool or two or three. It used to be colonial controlled and before that it was controlled by the Incas. But now the locals have their own cooperative, their own actually association and again, the salt is being sun evaporated. The water evaporates in the course of sort of 45 days and people rake the salt and, and there it is. And it's like, wow, you know, this is one of the most amazing landscapes I've ever been in. And of course, the, the Incas used that salt and people since have used it to make charqui. What we call jerky is originates in the word charqui from there. Just Extraordinary. Um, I also went to Malden to see, you know, I wrote to the Malden Salt Company, which is a famous English salt company, and they were known especially for the flake salt. It's in Essex. And it was pretty interesting to go and realize that they, of course, have, it's England, it's rainy mostly, so they've always boiled their brine. They draw it from an estuary, the Blackwater Estuary. And until 1986, they were boiling it over a coal fires. Imagine that, <laughs> coal fires. And so now over gas. And they're a huge, huge company. And it was sort of these opposite ends of, you know, individual laborers um, evaporating salt in ponds to this corporation with, you know, a huge infrastructure shipping salt out to Hong Kong. And those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. And it was, it was sort of a, a really good reminder to me um, of the range of the world of salt. I, I have always been such an enormous fan of the recipes that you document and develop. And I'm still so using... Kind, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> really? I'm, still, I'm still using so many recipes from uh, flatbreads and flavors. And, um, Isn't that wonderful? So yeah, wonderful. We're, we're, you know, it's 20, 27 years since that book That's, came I'm, That doesn't surprise me at all. Um. And I found the salad chapter very much in that in that same spirit. Can you hit on a couple of the salads that um, that you uh, developed that are just so dead simple? Perhaps the onion and then the olive salad. Ah, uh, well, the the onion salad really is. It's more like you salt the onions to make them. You beat them into shape, you know, if you slice onion and then salt it and let it rest for a bit and then rinse them off, you can kind of do anything with them. I mean, you can drape them onto hamburger, but you can also turn them into a salad. You talk about how that that simple move move of just salting 
um, letting the onions rest and then rinsing them off can be paired with something as easy as pomegranate seeds and maybe some mint. Yeah, or whatever fresh herb you have, you know, even and dill is fine too, or um, coriander leaves, cilantro, or even shiso. Um, but shiso and pomegranate is kind of a fun combination because they don't necessarily occur in the same place in, in nature, you know, or culturally. No, onion is just, it's really extraordinary once you've salted it, how how you, and rinsed it off, what, how you can play with it in, in different ways. The other one you mentioned was olives. Yeah, the green olives with the walnut and pomegranate. It's just, for me, it's an expression of that whole, um, the flavor palette that I was trying to explore in, in the Taste of Persia book. And this recipe was not in that book. <clears throat> but when you combine walnuts and the sort of richness of walnuts with those olives, I mean, it's an intense burst of flavor in your mouth. And I think that's one of those salads that is partly salad, partly condiment almost. You know, it's something that you want to make and maybe you want to make deliberately to have leftovers because the next day it, the flavors shift a little as everything starts to talk to each other even more, you know. I know I'm anthropomorphizing ingredients, but who doesn't, right? And then it, they sort of dance together, the acidity of the pomegranate and the saltiness of the olives, but it's much more than saltiness. It's it's that that ripe, what is the description? I mean, there's a, a little bit of tannin to it as well. And then the, the walnuts, you know, give you kind of a heartiness. It's a perfect thing to serve to people who are, uh, vegan, because it's got all kinds of intense flavor and no animal in it at all. But I like it as a side condiment too. For like for if you're making lamb or my mouth is water. I'm talking about this um, or any kind of grilled meat. It's a great thing to have on the side. Your your chapter on on sweets and baking uses salt in such an interesting way. Maybe we can start, I don't even know where to begin, maybe with the miso espresso caramel custard because it just looks so beautiful. And it is, I was stunned by how good it was. I was so thrilled with that. You know, um, David Leibovitz had a, had a, it started with me seeing a recipe or seeing his mention of doing something like that, but not, of course, with a salted ingredient. He was making a, a flan, in a, but in a tin, in a like a, a bread tin, a baking tin. And I thought, well, I could do that. And and instead of putting the salt in the in the caramel, let's play with miso and see what I can do. It's just the dance of the the miso gives this, I don't know, there's a there's a wonderful intensity. It's not like adding a pinch of salt to pastry when you're making it. It's a different thing. And it plays with the caramel. And there's a lovely slipperiness from the custard. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm very pleased with that one. It seemed miraculous that it should work. This has been such a pleasure for me. Um, thank you so much. Oh, a pleasure for me too, Evan. Thank you. Naomi Duguid is a writer, photographer, traveler, and home cook. Her latest book is The Miracle of Salt, Recipes and Techniques to Preserve, Ferment, and Transform Your Food. We have a recipe for her miso espresso caramel custard on our website. That sounds so good. You can find it at kcrw.com slash goodfood.
When we return, we hit the Curry Trail with Raghavan Iyer. Stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. As we continue to discuss our favorite cookbooks of 2022, we also have an eye on cookbooks coming out in 2023, books we know we'll turn to for recipes again and again. Curry, with all of its contradictions and complexity, is celebrated around the globe by people from all kinds of backgrounds. Who better to discuss curry with us than Raghavan Iyer? Born in Mumbai, he spent the last few decades exploring and sharing the cuisine of his homeland, and we're all the lucky recipients of his knowledge. He joins us in anticipation of his newest cookbook, On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. Hi, Raghavan. Hi, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so happy to have you here. Do we know how far back curry dates in India? In India, it dates back to um, about um, three to 4,000 years before Christ. And, uh, you know, you think back to the one of the earliest civilizations known to mankind, Mohenjo-daro and Harappa, which is, um, you know, where India and part of Pakistan is located at now. And, you know, we were roasting and grinding spices since then. And uh, they all became the basis for many of our stews. And uh, because, as you know, in curries in India, it has everything to do with the sauce. The book that I had authored a few years ago, 660 Curries, delved into the world of curries as witnessed in uh, the Indian subcontinent, which included India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Bhutan. And in this book, you do something a little different. You kind of take us on a trip of spice and sauce. Yes, and this is, um, I've always said this is looking at the um, diaspora of curries and curry powders as seen through the eyes of the colonials, because um, it really, you know, I give credit to the British for coining um, the concept of curry powders, and that's what um, they spread to the rest of the world. So often now when we think of curry of, of any kind, we think of red chili, we think of red pepper, but in in fact, it was black pepper, the peppercorn that catapulted curry around the globe. Yes, and uh, that's what the whole world came to India was for the black peppercorns. In fact, it was a long form of black pepper, pepper negrum, that uh, they came to India for. And uh, and then, of course, you know, they fell in love with black peppercorns, which uh, also became a source of trading, especially, you know, in England, people were paying rent with black peppercorns. Um, and so the pungency and the complexity of curries, even to this day in Southern India, actually comes with the prevalent usage of black peppercorns. It must have been fascinating for you to do all this research and dip in so strongly to this idea of curry powder when it's so antithetical yes. to cooking on the subcontinent. Yes, and uh, it was a uh, mind shift for me, you know, and uh, especially when the first book was so adamant about what curries are to Indians. <clears throat> it flew in the face of earth of what uh, 
I thought of curries. And so to, you know, get into the world of curry powders, um, research was definitely the way to go. And I had hired an incredible friend who uh, used to work for NPR and uh, an archivist, and she did a brilliant job in uh, providing me um, information and materials on uh, curries. And I've always said, you know, I I gave her some um, specifics of how I wanted it, and uh, she gave me a um, 400-page PDF with a 10-page glossary, oh uh, <laughs> which, you know, and for me, to take all of that and then condense it in the form of head notes and stories um, was a challenge. But, you know, I guess something good came off COVID and um, it sort of forced me to work on it. And I wrote the book uh, during a dark time in my life. And uh, as you know, I've been living with cancer now for four and a half years, metastatic cancer. And um, um, so the book I wrote it was a, a, a diversion that I really needed. And, um, you know, I looked at how, you know, all the European countries came to India, you know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Danish, and then, of course, the English, and how they all left their mark in terms of uh, what um, they wanted to leave in India. But more important, I mean, they got a lot out of India, you know all the expensive jewelry and the gems and, of course, spices, which um, was a moneymaker for them. And even though India was in the spice trade years before that, along with the Buddhist monks, you know, that's why you look at uh, the influence of um, uh, Buddhism and uh, the Far Eastern countries and how their food was a reflection of the utilization of spices and uh, you look at Thai curries, for instance, and how, um, you know, they defined their curries based on the kind of paste that they fashioned from uh, a combination of dry and wet ingredients. So they came up with the concept of red, yellow, and green curry paste. You say in the book that Thailand is the country outside of India most devoted to curry. Yes, you know, I mean, that's where you also saw the influence of Buddhism and Hinduism, you know, to a big extent, and uh, and how they embraced uh, the world of spices and they incorporated their own fresh herbs like lemongrass and lime leaves and galangal root, and uh, that all became bases of their curry paste. The word authentic, especially when it comes to food, can be so loaded. And yes. then there are the terms classic and traditional. Why do you shy away from all of these labels? Um, I frankly, I hate them because, you know, they. Uh, when you're talking about a tradition, I always say, what tradition? You know, especially when India is an amalgamation of so many different cultures. Authentic, you know, what is that? I remember having a conversation with an Indian when I was in one of my book tours um, years ago and he said uh, you know what you're doing is not authentic Indian food I said can you define to me what is authentic Indian food he goes well you know my mother's cooking and I said well I'm not your mother and I said you know this is uh, cooking that is versatile so I prefer using the phrase dynamic I'd love to just talk about a few of the the powders um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up, the the one curry powder that my mother had was Madras, yes. Madras curry powder. Uh-huh. Um, you say it's embarrassingly simple. It is. And uh, it's really a handful of, um, you know, grocery store spices. I mean, you're talking coriander, cumin, cinnamon, cardamom, peppercorns, chilies, you know, and nutmeg and ground ginger. And so um, by its nature, um, I think, you know, the availability of those ingredients and all you really have to do is grind them. And you've got, you know, an aromatic blend that knocks your socks off. And I feel like, uh, you know, it, like I've said in the book, I mean, if you don't have five minutes to spare, you know, you're missing out on something that is so exceptional and uh, it takes less, you know, five minutes to you measure out your ingredients you put them in a spice grinder and you've got an an amazing blend that can last you for months and create um, um, dishes that really sing with flavor that's Raghavan Iyer. His book on the curry trail, Chasing the Flavor That Seduced the World will be on shelves in March of 2023 if you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kundarajan and Gary Masiha. A reminder that our website is a treasure trove of recipes. Make some curry. Try that miso espresso caramel custard. Or if you're hosting a group, try that rack of oyster mushroom roast. It's all at kcrw.com slash good food. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll meet you back here next week for our comfort food show.